my family, man. I have a one-man show about my family called Painfully White. Um, I grew up with my, my dad and my stepmom in uh, Coldwater, um, Michigan, which is pretty much a small, white, racist farming town. But I also simultaneously grew up with my mom and my stepfather, and my stepfather's African-American, and um, they lived in a small, white, racist town as well. But my stepdad's family lived on a private road with a cul-de-sac, and it was his entire extended family. Um, that lived on this uh, road in Three Rivers, Michigan, um, which at one point I think was the home of the the KKK, I think, or like the Grand Wizard. But I mean, I was young. I was like five when they married. So I went kind of back and forth between like an all white life and then my life with my black stepfather and his family. And and my, my dad and my stepmom are very, very religious. My mom is not. And my stepfather was occasionally religious. Um, we'd go to his all black Southern Baptist church a lot where I would play the piano and humor was, a, is a huge part of my family. Everyone in my family is funny. Um, I'm actually, I'm a professional comedian and I am the quiet one. And I think oddly enough that you'll find that in a lot of comedians that generally I'm the youngest and the quiet one. So you just absorb and you listen and you see what happens and you see the reacts. And my grandmother was a, um, was the head librarian in her city in East Chicago. And every Saturday she would tell a story to the kids of the, of the city. And it was really cool. Cause I got to see her perform. She would sit and read these books and it'd be like a hundred kids you know, just chilling out, listening to my grandmother tell stories. And she was, my grandma Tonkovich was extremely funny. She was a complete performer and rock on tour. And people have asked me before, like where I got my comedic inspirations. And I would say like my grandmother, Mad Magazine and David Letterman. Those are the things that really influenced me a lot when I was growing up. My family's very funny um, and we deal with dramatic in tough situations by making jokes, you know, which is great for growing up, not great for maintaining a healthy relationship, though. I've, I have found I was, you know, like I was pre-law in college. Um, I wanted to be a political scientist. That was my thing. I wanted to be the youngest governor of Michigan. That was my when I was a kid. That was what I wanted. That was my goal. Not a lofty goal at all. And I used to wear three-piece suits to school. I had a briefcase. And then I got to college, and I got my um, bachelor's in political science and um, physics. And I was pre-law. And then I um, went to graduate school, and I saw one of my political science professors. It was Friday night. He was walking one direction. I was walking the other direction. I was going to the bar. And I was like, where are you going? And he is like, I'm going to the library. And I was like, it's Friday night. Come join us for a beer. And he's like, no, I'm going to go read political science journals. And I was like, what? Why? And he's like, that's what you do when you're a political scientist. You read journals and you write. And I was like, that sounds horrible. I don't want anything to do with that. And I got out. I got out of graduate school. Basically, because of that, I was like, that sounds like a nightmare to me. I love political science and I love the law. I would, I would think I would have made a great lawyer. 
if you ask any comic, I think most of them would say it was either law school or a comedy. It's crazy. It's the same brain, basically. I've had a million jobs. I've had f fucking thousands of jobs. Thousands. I mean, it's insane. And I've been fired from all of them, almost all of them. I have done everything from I was a janitor. I worked in a liquor store. I worked at a record store. I ran a college radio station. I was a roofer, did construction. Pretty much all of those that I just mentioned fired. At one point, I could not take being fired anymore. So I just said, fuck it. I'm just going to learn how to do things on my own. It was never like, you know, two weeks in. It was always a year and a half or two years in I would get fired because it was never for because of job performance either. It was generally me just being a salty little asshole and not enjoying the job and not knowing how to quit anything. I just never knew how to like be like, this doesn't work for me. I'm quitting. I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to make you fire me in uh, <laughs> some way or another. In 2004 and five, when I was working at the bookstore, we had a lot of famous people that would come in. It was kind of a famous bookstore. And one of them was Robin Williams, who was my idol. He was my hero. He was the guy that one of the reasons I moved to San Francisco was because Robin lived here. And I had heard about the San Francisco comedy scene in the 80s and 90s, which had been huge. I mean, everyone, Ellen DeGeneres, Robin, uh, Jake Johansson, even Mark Maron, Pat Oswalt, Blaine Capatch, like all these great comics had come out of the um, San Francisco scene. So I moved here kind of in a half-assed, like, I want to do this, but I don't know if it's going to work kind of thing. I kind of started getting my, my dipping my feet into the acting well. And then Robin came into the bookstore and I was like, I want to do what you do, sir. I, I want to be, I want to do what you do. And he was like, just do it. Just jump in. Don't have a backup plan. Just do it. And I was like, that's so fucking cool. I'll do that. And he's like, Hey, I'll boss. He's called me boss and everything. And then my, my boss was like pissed. He's like, the celebrity clientele is for, for me to talk to and not my employees. And I was like, well, snap. Okay, shoot. I ended up getting fired, of course, from that job as I add from every job. And um, I saw an ad in Craigslist. It was a comedy play and they were looking for an actor. And I was like, I was like, I'm just going to do what Robin said. I'm just going to dive in. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never auditioned. I don't even know how to memorize lines or anything, but I don't care anymore. I'm scared, but I'm just going to go do it. And I went down to the mock cafe and on uh, Valencia street where the audition was and the director was there and she's like take a side and then when you're ready to go up it's an open audition just go up on stage and so i didn't know that a side meant a script i thought she meant go sit on the side of the room so like take a seat take a side so i just sat there for fucking hours i didn't know what to do i was too scared to ask and finally she was like that's it we're done you've been here for hours do you want to go up and audition so i got up on stage and i just started making up shit I just made up a character and I made up some lines because I didn't know that there were scripts. When I was done, she was like, that's the ballsiest thing I've ever seen anyone do. You just made up your own lines. And I was like, oh, I didn't know what else we were supposed to do. And she's like, you didn't get the script. And I was like, I don't even know what a script is. And then she's like, you know what? You don't need the script. And then she called up one of these other actors that was in the play to just improvise with me. And then when I got home, there was already a message on my phone that she's like, you got the part. Not only did you get your part, but I'm going to make you the lead. And then we had all these great rehearsals. And then because of my improv skills, 
she had it so that at the intermission of the show, uh, I would go out and uh, improvise with the audience. So on the opening night, during the intermission, I went out into the audience and I was just playing with the audience and I was riffing and improvising and having all kinds of fun. And then I looked up and uh, about three rows in, Robin Williams was sitting there. And I was like, holy shit, it's my hero. It's the guy who told me to do this. There he is. So I just went up to him and I, I, I talked with a lateral lisp for my character. And I was like, oh my God, my brother's here. And he was like, oh, hey. And he started doing my, my voice back to me in character. And I was like, holy shit, this is insane. And then he came up on stage with me and he started going into the audience as well, like riffing with them. And I stood back behind him I can still see it like the lights and the stage and Robin's there and I can still see him standing there my, the hair on my arms were standing up because I was like this is my hero and he's the one that said just do it and don't look back Robin went into the audience and the house manager had the foresight to bring the house lights up so but everyone could see Robin and as I went up to Robin I looked into the audience and about 10 rows in was my boss who told me never to talk to the celebrity clientele. And I was like, fuck you. Look who gets to talk to the celebrity clientele now. The people who have been my talent agent since, J.E. Talent, they were at that show. And afterwards, they were like, you're awesome. You're amazing. I've never, how come I've never heard of you? Do you, are you represented by anybody? I was like, no, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm not represented by anybody. And they're like, we would like to sign you. And so I signed with J.E., I've always wanted to do voiceover since I was a kid. And they're like, okay, we'll have you do voiceover. So they started sending me out on voiceover gigs and I started booking voiceover shit. I hadn't yet really done stand-up, And so I started my own show called the Romaine event comedy show. And I would just do characters. I wouldn't do stand-up, and I had friends come to see me and they would be like, Hey, why don't you do stand-up? I'm like, I don't know how to do stand-up. And then that year in 2005, I was voted best comedian in the San Francisco Bay Guardian, and it ruined pretty much everything for me. It was an awesome thing to get, but it ruined me because I people started coming to my comedy show to see me do stand-up, and I didn't do stand-up, and they were really confused. And then I started doing stand-up, and I would go out to places, and people were like, this is the best comedian, and then I would just bomb. So I had to kind of live down this best comedian award thing because I wasn't and I proved it quickly to everyone just because nobody's good at stand up when they first start. Everybody sucks. You don't even know how to do it. It doesn't make sense. You do weird jokes that you would never tell. Like I look back now at some of those old tapes. And I'm just like, oh, God, what the hell was I thinking? And but in the mid 2000s in San Francisco was a great fertile time to start doing stand-up comedy. It was not a big scene at all. There were some cool shows you could do. There were some horrible shows. Obviously there's always horrible shows. I remember there was one open mic in North beach where you had to stand behind the bar. Uh, Cause the mic plugged into their stereo system. So you had to compete with the bartenders for space and like once in a while, you like grab a bottle for them. Some really great comics and writers and performers came out of that era in San Francisco. And it was an awesome time to do stand up because there wasn't a lot of stand up, other stand up comedians to compete with, but there was plenty of stage time. The audience was smart and they were fickle. You know, they just wouldn't go for the normal dick joke or whatever. Like, 
then you go on the road and you'd be like, well, this is fucking easy. Like San Francisco made it tough on you. Then you go on the road and you're like, anything fly. They're carrying you out on your shoulders. They're just like, you're amazing. And you're like, I get none of this in the Bay. Uh, so the, yeah, there was a lot of weird, awesome times in the, in when I first started doing stand, I think it'd be a lot harder to start now because there's just so many stand up comedians. Stand-up comedy is hard. It's not a job. It's not even really a fucking career. It is a lonely, basically a hobby um, that pays nothing, and you are relegated to the trash heap of history most of the time. It's not for the faint of heart. Like It took me a long, long time to even get past at the punchline most comics aspire to be passed at their local club. I mean, that's how you get into the ranks. That's how you move up to headliner and headliners where all the money is. There's no money in the, in the hosting and featuring. And for listeners who may not know there's at the comedy clubs, there's usually three comics host feature in the headliner. And the host usually makes like 50 bucks, maybe a set and the uh, feature makes maybe a hundred, hundred bucks a set. And then the headliner makes, you know, whatever they make two, three, 4,000 bucks. You know, I was a host for a while and then I've been a feature for quite a while now and then just started getting into headlining at clubs and then, you know, um, 2020 hit and then that all basically stopped. I didn't start any of this until I was 32. So I was already in my 30s because I had done all these other jobs that had been fired from beforehand. I was just scared. I always wanted to be an actor and a, and a comedian and vo do a voiceover, but I was just too scared to put myself out there. I had a lot of catching up to do as far as like learning how to do all that. So it's stand-up comedy as a job. It's like, it's so hard. It takes so much work and it's and struggle. There are some good, <laughs> maybe a couple of good things about it, I guess. Maybe making people laugh. If you can do anything else, they say you shouldn't do stand-up. It really should just be for the people they can't do anything else. I felt like it was my time to shine though. It was like, like I've never been fired from a performance ever. I've never been fired from a set. I've never been fired from a VO job. I've never been fired from a club. Um, because I think a lot of times the stuff I was doing was not, I was not happy because I wasn't using my brain and my creativity, like making a sandwich, you know, not disparaging any people that work at Subway or your local deli or whatever, because I've done it and it's, it's a lot of work, but it just wasn't for me. Like I, I just aspired to more and I was, I kind of was living in those, that rank for a long time, retail and cafe jobs. And I'm not sure I would, with this time off, I would, if I hadn't already done it for 15 years, if I'd go back, I don't, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. When you're living the life of the artist, like weekends, Tuesdays, Sundays, whatever, they all just seem to be about the same, you know? And it, what's really hard about that, though, is generating your own stuff, getting up every day and being like, I have to produce, I have to do something. You don't have to, but you have to, you know? It's not about the work. It's the sitting down to work that's hard. Doing the work is not hard because we all love it. It's sitting down and filling up a white page with words or sitting behind the kit and learning how to play the drums or practicing scales on the guitar or the piano. Those, that's the hard part. One thing I learned is to never say no. Always say yes. 
only say no when you can afford to say no. And I'm still not, I still couldn't afford to say no. I still had to say yes to many, many things that I didn't really want to do, but I was like, fuck it, I'll do it. I was the voice, you know, I was the voice of Pandora for a long time, Pandora Radio, and that helped me quite a bit. But I also did, I did, I was the voice of this Southern Baptist Church in Texas. I would do their announcements. They pay me 50 bucks a month, I think it was, or it was 100 bucks a month, and I would do their Sunday announcement. Sometimes I didn't get paid, sometimes I did, and sometimes I would be the voice of this Black Southern Baptist Church in Texas doing stand-up and uh, acting and voiceover or just the stuff I do seems to a lot of people as like an awesome thing. And and, and it, it can be awesome, but it's awesome like 10% of the time. It's an iceberg. It's the, you know, the awesomeness is peaks from around horrible anxiety riddled corners. Um, the awesomeness is generally from years of sweat and toil, anxiety and depression, um, drinking and <laughs> drugging. <laughs> I mean, I come from a family that didn't quite understand what I did for ever until my mom saw me doing stand up. I don't think she ever quite un- understood what I did, and I don't think she, it ever really occurred to her what you do to be a stand up comedian or an actor and stuff. And I think it's. I, th- I think this story is an old tale. You know, the Greeks probably told these same stories about performance. You know, um, that people think that it comes with great benefits and gifts and acknowledgments, and nothing could be further from the truth. It really has to be in your soul. It has to be in your bones. It's it's a reason people last for a year or two and go into accounting. You know, it's just not it's not for everyone. If you don't have it in your bones, it's not pleasant. Especially stand up comedy. Acting's different in my experience. Acting is different um, because you have an agent. You generally work on professional sets where there's craft services. I'm in uh, the union now as an actor, but years of doing non union work. You know. You might be at someone's house. There may not be hair and makeup or wardrobe or craft services might be a box of Lucky Charms, you know, and a donut, which is, frankly, I was cool with. I've always felt very blessed to just be an actor. I love it. I don't think I've ever turned down an acting gig. That's that's the weird thing about the arts is people will see, they'll come to your like graduation show or they'll watch your short video or they'll come to your play or they'll read your manuscript and they don't, quite understand all the um the struggle and times and you know anxiety that goes into all that stuff i mean it's not really their place to have to know that either i don't think it's a two-sided coin it's it's wonderful and shiny and looks awesome and on the other side it's dark and dingy and you know you might have a comedy club owner it's like i'm not gonna pay you because you didn't bring in enough people and you're like that's not my fucking job your job is to put asses in seats my job is to go up to make the yuck yucks i did that and you're not gonna pay me fuck you no you're gonna fucking pay me you're actually going to pay me or either we're gonna have a fight in the parking lot which has actually happened or like we're on the social media and we're gonna try to close your fucking club down it's just the world of acting and stand-up comedy has never been about being in the choir or being angelic. It's always had a very seedy underbelly to it. So 
perception is reality. So if if you are presenting yourself as someone that's always winning and always booking and always having fun, that's just how people are going to see it. The unions are safety nets, and as an artist in the United States, there are scant few safety nets, especially stand-up comedy. Now, as an actor and doing voiceover, you can get into SAG-AFTRA, which is awesome because they will go after people who don't pay you. They they keep tabs on where your commercial's playing, how many times it's played. I mean, there's a whole system that's been set up for years dating back, I think, to when Charlie Chaplin created United Artists. And that's why it's called United Artists, because he was trying to unite actors to help form a labor union, which is SAG-AFTRA. But as a stand-up comic, there is nothing. There's, there's no union. There's no set pay. The comedy club owner may or may not pay you. People may or may not show up. They may or may not even fucking listen anymore. Like now heckling has become such a big deal. And they're like, I'm just helping. It's like, no, you're fucking drunk on a box of white wine. Shut your trap. There's a lot of landmines in the world of stand-up comedy because you just, you could drive five hours, 14 hours, 16 hours. The same with musicians. You know, you get in your fucking drummer's van, you drive to Spokane, which is 22 hours away, and you may or may not get paid by the guy that owns this shitty little dingy club, and there may or may not be people, and you hope to sell a couple of t-shirts and a couple of CDs and make some fans and... I guess to some people, there's a. It's romantic, I guess. It's only romantic to the people who don't do it, you know? If you're in it, it's not that fucking romantic. Like, you get in a little fight, you're tired, you're driving, someone wants to stop, you don't want to stop, you don't know what to play on the stereo, like, everyone's farting. It's like the adventures you have, the stories you can tell, the people you meet make it worthwhile, but there's. It's too bad because I. I I truly believe there should be more of a normal realization of a floor, a foundation, if you will, for artists, especially in this country. They have it in Europe and and elsewhere, but making it to where you're getting paid, it's either you're butt poor or you're rich. I think at one point there kind of was. I think you could kind of make a middle class living doing the arts in like maybe the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even the 90s. But anymore, especially in stand up comedy, you're either you're either making a hundred bucks a gig or you're making a hundred thousand dollars selling out. I mean, that's there's really like no in between. What defines a comedian in their early lives? Trauma, obstacles and need inform comedy and that's i think what forges comedians is obstacles trauma and a need to be seen to be heard to have a spotlight to be noticed for a lot of us i've never met a good comedian that didn't have at least one parent with a physical or mental disability <laughs> like or just no parents even like you have to ha- you have to have suffered that's what makes you funny you know and i think it's that you're on sentry duty a lot when you're a kid when you have to self parent you are on sentry duty you're always scanning the horizon you're always looking from one end to the other end and what makes you a good comedian's observations scanning a room getting a feel for the room understanding um, trends and desires and how people are feeling and how to speak directly and communicate in a way that's 
that's listenable and scannable and understandable and then take these big concepts and make it conversationable. Is that a word? Conversationable? I don't think that's a word. The bruises and the scars and the scabs inform comedy. There are people I've met who are like, I, my parents are together and they have been for 50 years and my family is super supportive and it's like, ah, oh, fucking great, Ashley. And then, you know, you see him on stage and you're like, I just, it's just not there. It's funny, but there's a difference between being funny and being memorable. There's people you go see them and you're like, yeah, that was great. That's good. And then you leave and you're, you know, people will be like, who'd you see? And you're like, Oof, who did I see? What was that guy's name? But if you speak from the heart where you have emotions and you have that trauma, and I love the saying that, you know, you pick people because in your life, in a relationship, because your your wounds line up on the dance floor. It's the same thing with an audience. If you can have that shared emotion, that shared experience, those same wounds, you can talk about the dark stuff. You can talk about the light stuff, but people, they come up to you and they're like, oh man, when you talked about that, you know, when you talked about losing your dog when you were four, or you talked about getting spanked or the fact that your parents are divorced or whatever, then they remember that stuff and they remember it because it's a shared emotion. It's hard when you first start stand up, especially for myself uh, and a lot of, but I do know a lot of comics do this. They have a, a material that's not close to them. Their material, I call it arm's length. They have, their material's arm's length from who they really are because it's scary and you need protection. And then as you get better and better and you become more of a pro and more of a pro that the distance gets closer and closer to your chest and then the greats can get up there and just uh, open their chest up it's it's because of that channel of those shared experiences and a lot of that is is comes from trauma and it comes from just feeling like either you don't exist or you don't fit in or you're not being heard or you're not being seen and that's what creates that bond So <clears throat> for years, I couldn't tell people I was a comedian. I couldn't do it. I would tell them anything else. I wouldn't lie, but I would definitely prevaricate, if you will. I would say I was a writer or something because it is the worst. The worst is to tell people at a party or a stranger that you're a comedian. For one, they've always got a fucking joke, you know, and it's always horrible. And a lot of times it's racist or sexist and just disgusting and horrible. And they're always like, put that in your skit, you know, like it's, but acknowledge, uh, there's so much strength that you get by acknowledging what you are, who you are and what you do and your art form and, and just owning it, which is something I've had to work on in therapy is owning it. Cause I hid from it for so long because I just, I didn't like it. I didn't like the words coming out of my mouth. I mean, a lot of times as an artist, imposter syndrome is a real fucking thing. Underline it, score it, bold it, put quotes around it because it's there. It's real. It's just it's a constant in the equation of being a performer is imposter syndrome. It's just like I'm not good enough. I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm doing. And when you have that and you go to a party and even if you feel like you're fairly successful, 
someone's like, hey, what do you do? Or I or the, my favorite is like, I heard you were a funny man, you know, and you're like, oh, God, this is already going bad. I'm not funny. I don't like funny. I don't like you. I just want to drink my scotch and sit in the corner and be quiet. I sw- if you go to a party, if it's not full of comedians, if a party's full of comedians, it's a cacophony of just sound because comedians won't shut up around each other. But if you go to a party and it's just like someone sitting in the corner darkly, maybe with a cat in a in a scotch and they're they don't look happy, it's probably a comedian. <laughs> it's probably what you see in the corner is a comedian because like we are n- like normally very shy people and we like to observe and we're not outgoing especially on command nothing will kill a comedian's soul more than a command be funny oh my god i used to do this club the owner right before i would go on stage would grab me it'd be like ladies and gentlemen are you ready for your headliner let's bring up maybe you know she would grab me and go don't forget to be funny Paco Romaine. And I just, that's all I could think about on the way up to the stage is like, oh, fuck. Does she think I'm not funny? Does the audience think I'm not funny? Have I not been funny before? What happened last night? Did I say something that wasn't fun? And it's so horrible, you know, because it's like to them, they're like, I'm chopping it up with the funny guy. And like, ah, you know, and it's just like, it just ruins your soul. It just takes the balloon down. I don't want to be funny. Nobody needs this. Nobody wants that. I just want some dip. I want a little bit dip. I want one of those awesome looking sandwiches with the bagel thing. And I want to drink and I want to just sit down and talk to people. And I want to talk to them. I don't really want to talk about what I do because it's hard to explain. Nobody gets it, especially in mid Michigan where I'm from. Nobody gets that stuff. Nobody. Look, my hands are soft. I have very soft, luscious hands. People out there have stuff on them. Calluses. I don't have these hands don't have calluses. You can't see it, but believe me. I'm a fan of comedy and I'm a, a student of comedy. Um, I love slapstick. I always have. I grew up watching Mel Brooks movies and Tim Conway and Smothers Brothers and Monty Python was a huge influence to me. And I, I've always loved smart and silly. And that's what I try to write. And that's what I try to perform is smart and silly stuff. I like to make smart stuff silly and silly stuff smart. And that's always been my my thing. I haven't always pulled it off, but that's what I try to do. And I love that style. I love very subtle humor. I love sarcasm. I love a good reveal joke. That's one of the reasons I loved Monty Python when I was a teenager, because they do very smart things in a silly manner. And I, I really love that. And I really believe that is gone. Like Americans don't get satire. And they never really have, but it's even worse now. I mean, have you ever tried to crack a joke with somebody and they're like, what? Uh, you really have dolphins in your pool? And you're like, no, it's a fucking joke. So I like I like the that era. There is also, unfortunately, an era of comedy that was hurtful to a lot of people. And that's not missed at all. And I don't believe it ever needs to come back or be around. I think pe- people talk about woke, politically correct, and um, being canceled. And I think there's a good fucking reason for that. You can be funny and not be hurtful. You could always be funny and not be hurtful. Punching up is always the direction you should be punching. You should never punch down. It's not fucking funny. Negative isn't funny. I can go on and on about this. I When I teach comedy writing, I try to imbue, especially because the ending is always very hard for people to write, especially in sketch comedy. 
and they'll try to do something that's negative. They'll say something that's hurtful or they'll have a gun or there's something that's, and it's like, I don't miss that kind of stuff. I do miss silliness and I do miss like smart humor. Also comics were never the coolest person in the room ever until lately. Carlin was not a cool person. Richard Pryor was not cool. You know, uh, Robin wasn't cool. They're all just nerds, basically. And now everyone's trying to out-cool each other. And it sucks. It makes everything so unfunny to me. There's no nuance. There's no uh, realness there. It's too cool. But I do believe the coolness factor that's happened in comedy is partly because there's just everyone wants to be a stand-up comic now. Nobody knows what they're getting themselves into. And maybe music's a little different, but with comedy, you can go to one comedy open mic and call yourself a comedian. I'm a comedian now. It's like, oh, really? How long have you been doing comedy? A week? Well, fuck. You know what? Maybe you're not a comedian yet. Like with music, at least if you do an open mic and you're like, bink, 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 it's like that's so you don't even know how to play. Go do some fucking scales and come back. And now you're, you can be a musician. But it's so it's tough. I mean, there are so many comedians. It's insane, especially compared to when I first started. Comedy was never given much of love. And now, uh, and I would say it's basically because of YouTube and Netflix. Comedy has exploded and people think it's cool and you can get on stage and you can talk about your mom and you can do a fun voice and you can talk about your relationships. And it's just like everyone looks like an underwear model now. Like that is not how I don't. I don't, comics should not be in shape, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But I do like having, I do like the idea that there's competition. It makes people better and it really separates like the good from the bad quite easily when it's right in front of you. I think it made the scene softer. I think in a weird, weird way, comedians are nicer now. And I don't know what happened, but like when I first started, comics were not that nice of people, but now like comics are sober. They have day jobs. They're nice. I think comedy is extremely important, and it always has been. I mean, geez, if you look back at the the um, history of comedy in Japan and India and Greece and Italy, and I mean, Commedia dell'arte from the 14th century. I mean, it's just like it's been around forever because people need a laugh. It's such a wonderful release and necessary emotional stimulus that, I mean, it's unimaginable. Dear listener, I challenge you right now. If you're driving, keep driving. But if you're not, close your eyes. Think of a world without comedy. Can you even? You can't. It's, you can't. You know, when people cry and laugh, you're like, are you crying or are you laughing? I can't fucking tell. That's the beauty of that. That is the beauty of it think about that dissect that for a second in your brain there's a thin blue line between laughter and crying and it's because it's they're both necessary things that we have to do as human beings we have to let it out we have to get it out so there's a very important place for comedy in every society every structure every city every landscape and, and hopefully you'll find either the that person or that thing that makes you laugh hopefully on a daily basis or you are that person or that thing that makes people laugh on a daily basis and allow yourself to enjoy it and to accept it and to understand why it's important 
And next time you go to a comedy club and you want to shout something from the fucking audience, don't do it. 